Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you listening to our podcasts. This week is episode 172. This is part one of Dr. Baraki and I's question and answer session from our recent two-day seminar in Philadelphia at Warhorse Barbell Club. Really cool gym. If you guys are in Philadelphia, which is my favorite city in the contiguous United States, go check that place out. Really great group of people there. Great equipment. Great vibes, if you will. Uh, in any case, this is our Q&A, part one. Uh, in this particular podcast, we discuss weight-independent benefits of dietary changes, salt intake, and exercise, peak strength throughout a lifetime, how to get your kids training, and much, much more. We also have some big news to announce, again, because last week I told you guys about this, but the Barbell Medicine app is still live and available for free in the Apple App Store. If you're looking for an app to log your workouts, track PRs, volume, body composition, etc., this app is for you. The link is in the description below. For all you green bubble folks, you Android users, we haven't forgot about you. It's just, you know, going to take some time. So hang tight. We'll get to you. And uh, yeah, this app is great. We've been getting good reviews and good feedback so far. Uh, the user interface is much, much cleaner than using spreadsheets, obviously. Thank God. And uh, yeah, go check it out. We've got all of our free templates there, all of the paid templates there. You can log your own stuff, create your own workouts, etc. It's pretty cool. And then finally, all of our apparel is back in stock and ready for sale. So if you want to wrap barbell medicine in the gym, go check that out. There's links to the apparel shop in the description below. Without any further ado, let's get into this week's podcast. Thank you guys all for coming out to our seminar here in Philadelphia, here at Warhorse Barbell, is it Club? Barbell Club, thank you guys so much. Appreciate your attention, appreciate your questions. Um, Austin has uh, pruned down all the questions submitted uh, over the weekend, and these are the top 15 or 20. If we didn't get to your question, it's nothing personal. Uh, please ask it on our forum, send us an email, uh, interact with us on our Facebook group. Um, I, don't, I don't know how else people reach us. There are plenty of ways they can reach us. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Question number one. How do we marry the idea, I don't recommend that without a prenup, but how do we marry the idea that lots of factors related to obesity are out of our conscious control and that we need to lose weight to improve health? I don't, I don't know that those are like mutually exclusive. Hence, mutually the inclusive. reason for this question, that we yeah. can address that. Yeah, okay. You wanna start? Sure. All right, do yeah. the The implication in this question is that we necessarily must lose weight in order to improve health, which I, I don't think is necessarily accurate. There are tons of things. Even if an individual is carrying excess body fat, even if an individual has obesity, there are lots of things that can be done for them to improve their health, even if their weight does not change. And that can relate to physical activity, that can relate to many of the dietary substitutions that we talked about over the course of the weekend, right? So we talked about substituting the sources of dietary fats, for example, how that impacts cardiovascular risk, impacting, you know, from the standpoint of their carbohydrate intake, replacing lower fiber sources for higher fiber sources, various other kinds of plant foods and fish and things like that, that if substituted into the diet, particularly if they're replacing some of those foods that uh, Jordan described as being those that don't really generate a lot of feelings of fullness, satiety, um, or that tend to uh, fail to suppress appetite, the highly palatable, you know, hyper-processed packaged snack foods, treats, super tasty stuff, substituting that stuff out with some of these things, even if it does not generate weight loss in the way that we often expect those kind of interventions do, we can see substantial improvements in health. We can see improvements in blood cholesterol levels, 
we can see improvements in blood pressure, we can see improvements in blood sugar, and so we don't want all of this conversation around obesity to be 100% weight-centric, because uh, that ends up leading to a lot of frustration when folks have trouble with it, because it is something that can be very challenging uh, for lots of folks. So I think that uh, it's important to convey the message that there are a lot of ways that we can go about improving our health. For those with excess body fat and complications of that, then definitely we can stand to improve health quite a bit by reducing that body fat. And we have lots of ways to do that, right? Through the lifestyle changes, medications, surgical options, things like that. But even if we don't uh, reduce body weight, body fat, there are lots of ways that we can improve health. And so um, that is like the main reason, the main thing I wanted to get across with this oh. question, because it really implied like the only way that we can improve health is by losing weight, which is definitely not the case. But the other side of this is this concern that comes up a lot when we discuss this kind of modern understanding of obesity as involving a lot of factors that are not within our conscious control. There's our brain, to, to simplify, has these kind of like two big parts. There's the cortex, the outer part, and then the subcortex is the inner part. And this inner part runs all of our subconscious processes and tons of factors relating to obesity, appetite control, feelings of fullness, happen in these subcortical regions, these areas that are beneath our conscious awareness and control. And so uh, I don't think that conveying these ideas that these areas play a big role in obesity is like reason to lose all hope when it comes to managing overweight yep. and obesity, but rather it helps to actually mitigate some of the frustration when everybody else in the world is telling you, just try harder it's your fault that you're not trying hard enough to do this, right? This yeah. is, you're choosing to be this way. You are bad for, <laughs> for that, yeah. right? It's actually much more accurate when we recognize that, hey, I didn't choose to be hungry. I didn't choose when I got full from this meal. And imagine going through your life ravenously hungry all the time without having chosen for that to be <laughs> the case. And everybody else is telling you, just like, you know, just don't eat. It's free to not eat. People, people say that all the time, oh as if that's like, easy solution for obesity, right? So it's like comical, it's insulting, and it's unhelpful for people who are struggling with this issue. So it makes it easier for us to engage with this as a medical condition, as a disease process. Um, if people are having trouble from the lifestyle standpoint, we can escalate these medications, other options that can help with re better regulating appetite, fullness, the lifestyle interventions. And again, even if it doesn't ultimately result in weight loss, we can substantially improve health uh, and longevity uh, through that anyway. Yeah. I didn't read it as like, are there any non-independent, weight-independent, or weight-dependent ways that we can increase health? Like, yes, of course, there's many ways to improve health that are independent of what happens with your weight or body composition. I read it more like this existential angst, like, if we, if we believe that a lot of these food behaviors are out of our conscious control, what then? It's like, like this changes, you know, what we do. And I, I agree, I actually think it's a benefit because instead of focusing on things that are not really modifiable, because you can't really choose what happens subconsciously to you, um, instead of wasting time and wasting effort and guilt and agonizing and shame over those stuff, you can focus on things you can change or maybe within uh, your control to change. You can uh, try to adopt a uh, high satiety or satiety promoting diet. Uh, for example, one that's higher in protein maybe than what you're eating, one that's higher in dietary fiber uh, than what you're eating, one that has less ultra processed foods. You can try adjusting your eating environment, your food environment, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, whereas a focus on willpower kind of ignores those things. Right? I think the best example of that is you look at like intensive lifestyle intervention trials in the medical research, right? 
on average, you'd be lucky if maybe you get some like five-ish percent, maybe five to eight percent if you're doing real good sustained weight loss in many mm -hmm. of these trials that, that recruit average folks into these studies. Yep. Or you put them on something like semaglutide, one of these medications that we talked about that helps to better regulate this stuff in the brain. Boom, 15 to 18 percent weight loss. Did anything change about their willpower or their uh, moral fortitude or any of that kind of stuff? Did they become better people? Be better people no, yeah. We just actually attacked the source of the problem more effectively, these mm -hmm. kind of subcortical uh, issues, instead of just telling them try harder. Yep. Cool. Yeah, that's that. All right, question number two. I always feel like uh, Regis Philbin from like, who wants to be a millionaire? Like the mm -hmm. light you go. It's a good okay, question. It's a good throwback. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're too young for that. Uh, in terms of sodium intake, at what point do you allow individuals to consume greater than the RDA as a result of loss through sweat or exercise? It's actually a good question. Um, there are basically two groups of people that should uh, or, or would benefit from taking in greater than the uh, 2,400 milligrams or less per day of sodium. One is going to be uh, people whose calorie or energy requirements are such that even if they ate a diet that is hot, uh, has virtually no processed foods in it, it's otherwise health promoting, um, will just due to the energy intake itself will put them their sodium intake higher than the 2400. It's like, can't help it, bro. I can't like get the sodium out of the foods that I'm eating um, just because they actually have to eat so much volume of food to maintain a healthy body weight and body composition. Those are relatively rare, but you know, large lean people, large lean, uh, highly active folks, yeah, they would all uh, qualify for that. And so you're like, I can't get less than 2400 milligrams of sodium per day, what do? And it's like, I don't know that it would benefit you to lower your sodium intake. Uh, also people who, uh, obviously are very active in hot and or humid environments who sweat a lot, who happen to have a lot of sodium in their sweat, they probably would benefit from replacing that uh, and it may actually be more than 2,400 milligrams per day. Problem is we don't know how much sodium that they're losing, uh, but the good thing is it doesn't really matter how much sodium that they're losing, um, meaning that there's no real rush to replace this stuff. Virtually after all types of intensive exercise, physical activity, your sodium level in your blood drops below normal. We call that hyponatremia. Um, the risk there isn't that you have this like acute, short-term, um, small decrease in blood sodium levels. The worry there, and you know that that in and of itself is super dangerous. The worry is that you correct that too quickly or take steps that are extraordinary and try to replace it super quickly, like drinking gallons and gallons of free water or Gatorade or something like that. There's been a few high, high profile incidences of uh, cerebral edema, the brain actually swelling and, ca and causing sudden death. Uh, not good. And the, the whole idea is like, well, I just had all the sweat. It's got a bunch of sodium, salt, uh, sodium in it, so I got to replace it now. And it's like, honestly, you just gave yourself a few more hours of eating and drinking. Normally, you'd be fine tomorrow. But the idea is you have to replace everything now, um, kind of make some of these behaviors a little more common that are unnecessary. And I feel the same way, uh, not that this is super related, but uh, when people are like, I need to have a post-workout shake now. Like they just finished their last rep, they haven't even finished, stripped the bar, and they're like, I need it now. Protein, carbohydrates, now. And it's like, it's okay if you go home first. Maybe if you go home and shower first. They even go home, shower, interact with a loved one, cook. Like you don't need to, it doesn't need to be like, you know, within the next 30 minutes or the next hour, it could be uh, four hours later and you'd be perfectly fine and not know the difference the following day. Um, and that actually extends quite, you know, uh, a long way further than that. 
So in any case, what to do about this? I don't actually think there's a really great solution as far as determining how much more sodium or determining how much more fluid someone should take in um, relative uh, to sodium based on anything I can send you home with. You'd have to do some pretty in-depth monitoring stuff, but the current guidelines for this recommend that people while during, uh, during activities have access to fluids and drink as much as they want or as little as they want, and then afterwards that they eat a meal and drink normally and don't take any special steps like electrolyte replacement stuff or add a ton of salt to their meals or restrict salt either. So I basically wouldn't do anything special. The only time that I might start nerding out on this are people who are competing multiple times per day or training multiple times per day in hot and humid environments. And even then, I'd be pretty cautious about what levels we're sort of working with. Because again, the body, the kidneys in particular, are really, really smart. And anytime we try to screw with them, they, they kind of fight back. So I don't really want to <laughs> get on somebody's kidneys' bad side uh, or bad sides because they're, yeah. Does that make sense? Do you have anything to add to that? You taking an electrolyte supplement, bro? I do not take an electrolyte supplement. <laughs> that seems like a that seems like an opportunity for endorsement. Yeah, there's a there's a funny um, there's a company that I'll leave unnamed, but they are one of these electrolyte replacements. They claim to like hydrate people better, and uh, this came up recently. They advertised their product as utilizing something called CTT, and it's like registered what? trademark. Cellular transport technology. Oh shoot, just osmosis? And literally what their claim is, is that their supplement results in better hydration compared to just plain water. And the way this happens is because in the gut, we all have receptors that when there is sodium and there's glucose present in the fluid, it gets, there's a co-transporter that absorbs this stuff faster compared to plain water alone. We all have this in our gut. Every one of us has this in their gut, and that is their patented technology, is CTT, because their fluid has sodium and glucose in it. So they're just patenting, not patenting, Sh really, water. but their claim to fame is a, a, a transporter that everybody already has in their guts, and they're just using that to hydrate you, which is kind of silly. Anyway. Built differently, bro. That's right. <laughs> right. We're not that smart to come up with marketing like that. But. No, we just lie to people. <laughs> all, right. Uh, all right. Question number three. Is it correct to assume that strength declines with age? Yes. If so, at about what age is peak strength on average? Should specific exercises change as one ages? Or we should stop deadlifting and or squatting? What is the latest research on total knee replacement and the availability advisability? advisability. That was like availability. And advisability of deadlifting and squatting. Ooh. That's a good, I think mean, it's a good, it's just like a good series of questions. It's, uh, like, I, it's like I do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as does strength on average decline with age, the answer to that is yes. Uh, the data on this is, is I don't know, uh, less interesting, I, I guess, than you might have hoped for. Most people become less and less active as they age. They lose muscle mass as they age. And, well, look at, you know, lo and behold, they're not quite as strong as they age, as they've lost, as they've lost muscle mass and become less active. As far as the data on people who maintain physical activity, maintain muscle mass, do they lose strength just because they've gotten older? It doesn't appear to be the case. So I don't know. No big surprise there to me. As far as what age uh, do you see peak strength? Again, this depends on how you measure it. If you look at just the like barbell strength sports, we're talking about usually early 30s, mid 30s, somewhere in there. But a lot of this has to do with like training history and how long somebody's been training. I expect actually in powerlifting for that sort of trend to get become really upwards. Oh, you think it's going to get go upwards? I think so. I think it's going to go the other way. Why? 
Because I think oh, we're going to We be, just found a disagreement. Boom, argument. <laughs> well, so the way I see it now is that powerlifting used to be such this fringe sport, right? And mm-hmm. so like the cohort right now that is competing, um, particularly people that are very at high, high levels of competition have been doing this for a while and will you know, have kind of shifted the age up. And I think as we recruit younger and younger talent that start developing earlier and earlier, I expect that average peak strength to, to be at a younger age. Maybe. You think that those folks are going to keep competing indefinitely and then it go the other way. Yeah, well, I just People agree. will stick around in, the more people come into the sport, they'll stick around in masters competition. Because that, that's kind of like what I've seen in the swimming world. Yeah. Like masters records are quite fast because yeah. people stay in the sport for a while. But in our sport right now, masters records aren't higher than the open records. So you would say the peak strength was earlier. Uh, potentially, yeah. Yeah, right. We'll see. <laughs> to be do- so, yeah, so I think that, you know, the, the, as far as general population outside of powerlifting, I reported in, the, in one of the early lectures of the weekend on sarcopenia and things like that, that kind of general trajectory of strength across the lifespan. And those data, those data that I cited came from hand grip strength was the way that was measured. And it kind of peaked in like the 30s and then it started declining from there. But again, remember that context that I described was pe- adults who were physically inactive. Right? That's when it started declining from 30s to 50s, and then after 50s it started declining more precipitously in adults who were physically inactive. I think training can forestall that substantially and result in increases in strength for probably longer than most people think, and definitely if people have a delayed start to their training. Sure, yeah. Right? So if, if you're physically inactive and then you start training at 40, when is your peak strength going to be? Yeah, you could, you know, it could be 55, 60, who knows, sure. if you keep training consistently starting later on. So um, I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, the, uh, the sense I get is like, is this maybe, is this person wondering, like, am I past my peak or, or something well, like I this? So I that wouldn't necessarily be mm-hmm. something that, that I would worry about. Um, and I don't think that you need to choose any specific exercises based on age, just what the person wants to do. They can adapt if you dose it properly, right? So again, movement is safe. The dosage and intensity of loading is what we really care about. So we can have people across the age spectrum um, who can do all sorts of stuff if we dose it properly. Of course, you have to account for limitations when they come into exercise, Mm -hmm. right? But that's like part of being a good coach, taking that kind of history and evaluating what do they want to accomplish and what are their limitations and trying to come up with a plan from how you get from point A to point B. Uh, Total knee replacement and deadlifting and squatting. I mean... I don't think that there is, when it said like latest research, there is yeah. not really any research directly on that question of like taking people post knee arthroplasty and having them do heavy deadlifts. Uh, but in practice, we see it all the time. People yeah, do it yeah. frequently. Uh, yeah, I, I know, I don't think that there are any like comparative studies of like, all right, you're doing squats versus leg press, for example, or like comparing exercise to exercise and trying to chart like, does this specific exercise yield better outcomes post replacement? But yeah. We see people doing deadlifting and squatting after hip replacements, knee replacements, whatever. Uh, Main thing is uh, not really restricting them on how they can move after they're cleared to train, right? So like once somebody's completed uh, the rehab process and is cleared to like exercise, like we don't need to put artificial limits on them just because they have a joint replacement, Mm -hmm. would seem to be the case. Unless there are, you know, other contraindications. Leonard, He's, he's, he's double kneed up, whatever, and still deadlifting and squatting. So. This is his dad. Oh, that's my dad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This may surprise you. He's a pretty good overhead presser. I think he pressed in the 160s for reps. Oh, yeah, yeah. dude. Okay. That's I pretty know. good. Did, so did I get it from him? You did. Or did he get it from me? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. 
if you think about it. <laughs> okay. Do some people actually require less sleep, or have they just adapted to life with lower amounts of sleep? Uh, yes, to the first, uh, and then that's just the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the point we want to get across here is that on average, if you look at you know sleep recommendations, they fall around the seven, seven and a half hour range per night, assuming we have reasonable, reasonably good quality sleep happening. You don't, you're not sleeping for that many hours, but you have horribly untreated sleep apnea the whole time. Um, but yes, there is, as with everything else we talked about this weekend, a pretty broad range of variation between people. Some people do fine with a bit less. Some people actually need a bit more. Um, although I will say that I think the number of people who think they do fine with less compared to the number of people who actually do fine with less is Correct, uh, yeah. different. I think lots of people who think they do fine with less but are in fact not or are impaired is uh, significant. Sure. So if you feel like that's you, I would just assume that it's not for now yeah. <laughs> and live your life accordingly and then kind of see what happens. You may be surprised. Yeah, if you find yourself catching up on sleep a lot over the weekends, that would be like one indicator that maybe you don't actually thrive on lower amounts of sleep duration. Um, and also interestingly, some of the studies on like sleep, like naps and exercise performance, they're doing it on folk. They were, these people were not sleep restricted at all and they gave them naps and they still perform better. Mm. So it's like, you know, Sleep seems to be good. Yeah, even if so. You Not feel, controversial opinion. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hot take. Sleep's yeah. awesome. Great. Uh, would you put a 12 to 15 year old on the Barbo Medicine beginner template? Yes. Yeah, whoever. Yeah. Elliot, yes. <laughs> you she identifies. Uh, yeah. The, the whole point is uh, of this question is are there specific considerations for youth in resistance training? Uh, my specific considerations don't have anything to do with exercise selection, volume, intensity, or anything like that that's unique from what we dis uh, discussed in the programming lecture, but rather that far too few uh, of the youth are actually participating. So the percentages of folks of youth that are actually participating in the recommended amount of resistance training uh, is very similar to um, adults, so just not a lot. Uh, and starting them young, can have knock-on effects with participation um, throughout adulthood. So 10 out of 10 would recommend all youth engaging in resistance training. Doesn't, you don't need to have any you know, special considerations like, oh, just make sure they go lighter or make sure their form is perfect. It's like, well, I'd want everybody to have like an efficient, repeatable technique, right? But we don't need to be like, you know, uh, super, super vigilant about it any more than we would be, you know? with us mm -hmm. uh, training or parents training, right? Actually, I should say not necessarily us training, but anybody who's new to training, right? So if you think, because one concern is gonna be injury risk, right? Hopefully nobody's thinking about like the growth stunting or whatever. I feel like that's been firmly debunked. Nope, definitely not. Okay. Going to any ESPN well, post of a kid lifting weights, that's most of the comments. All right, well, I had a Kid gonna grow up to be four foot two, sure. LOL. <laughs> I just think like those, like those people obviously failed like biology class. Because if anything, you would think like, okay, so you're loading the bony skeleton in a period when it's immature, so that would like generate additional stress to make it grow taller. Shoot, I should've, mom, why didn't you make me lift weights? Yeah, yeah, so let's just assume though that people who move past this growth stunting thing that has been you know, thoroughly debunked and they're mostly wor worried about injury risk. Well, the injury risk from resistance training, that, that sort of thing is, is probably highest in individuals who are new to resistance training because at that point, their fitness level, their training tolerance level, their sort of uh, capacity to deal with all this novel stress is the lowest it's ever gonna be. 
And so all the exercises are new, all the range of motions are new, all the stresses are new, right? And so because they're new and they have no sort of uh, uh, really well-developed ability to deal with all of this novel stress, that puts them at highest risk for like an overuse injury or sudden you know, acute injury. And so I don't think that's unique to youth. Uh, and in fact, they may be a little bit more uh, or less sensitive than adults who've had a lifetime of maybe other things that have affected them. Um, so I see no reason to be like hypervigilant about technique any more than I would be about an adult. But I just think if you're considering risk uh, as the major aversion towards participation, um, you know, you'd want to pick an effect, uh, efficient, repeatable technique and, uh, and go from there, but you don't need to be super vigilant about it. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Derek Miles wrote an excellent article series on our site about youth resistance training and how, in general, I agree, there's not enough participation in it and the benefits dramatically outweigh the risks. Um, and so we're trying to get this message out there a little bit more, <laughs> definitely. I would have loved to be doing a program like that Ooh. or training when I was 12 to 15 years old. I know that I was not. I probably picked up a weight uh, for the first time in that training capacity, probably like late high school time frame, and yeah. I definitely had no idea what I was doing. And even through my college like swimming career, I was training with, you know, we, we had a coach who was, uh, training us in in the weight room, and he was not great. Um, and I think probably we undershot our potential quite a bit, probably because his attention was much more on the football team than he was on the you know nerdy swimmers. But um, that aside, I think I would have been better off in numerous ways had I started training in this 12 to 15 kind of uh, uh, age time frame uh, with a program like this or, or going about resistance training at that earlier age. If we go like much earlier than that, like into the sub 10 kind of age groups, I think that we are probably better off framing it kind of more as like play than is like structured training for a lot of uh, kids in that age range. But I mean, 12 to 15, I think you can start training around then. Like I, you yeah. know, thinking back to where I was in that time frame, I could have followed a program reasonably, reasonably well. Probably although, could have too. Yeah, although I'm not gonna create the artificial difference between training and exercise activity. I just mean like kids playing and not having like a six-year-old sitting there trying to like fill in their training log after they do their training session. <laughs> I mean, sure, but you could if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> if you wanted to be that parent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see, what are the effects of fiber supplementation as opposed to fiber consumption from real food sources on overall health and strength performance? Uh, on strength performance, I cannot tell you that fiber has any beneficial effects. I, I've searched for them, trust me. As I'm scooping down that last serving of vegetables per day, I'm like, come on, give me something. I need the motivation. I can't find it. So I don't really have anything to say about that. Although I guess if you live longer and then are able to train longer at some point, <laughs> I mean, mate, right? I don't know. That's your argument on the, for the powerlifting. They're going to age out everybody yeah. else. Yeah, right. Uh, as far as health uh, goes, fiber supplementation, we really only have data on uh, atherogenic lipoprotein lowering effect. Um, it, what I mean by that is like lowering things like LDL, for example, uh, that fiber supplementation tends to do that really well. Um, whereas all the other health promoting effects of fiber intake are only found with consuming whole food sources of fiber. Um, but as far as other health promoting effects, it seems to be due to this more complex relationship between the fiber, what's carrying the fiber, and also all these other uh, nutrients uh, around it. We call this the food matrix effect. Effectively, the effect, effectively, the effect, I got trapped in my own sentence structure. The effect of the food is more complex 
or is greater than the sum of the parts. So it's not just the fiber, it's the fiber plus the flavonoids, plus the polyphenols, plus these other con components of the food itself that all when mixed together in these uh, amounts that we call vegetables and fruit, for example, uh, tend to have a greater amount of health promoting effects than just the fiber in and of itself. So. That's my answer to that question. Yeah, I think overwhelmingly a lot of the benefits that we see from these come from the fact that many of them are coming from plant sources that provide these other really beneficial compounds. As you mentioned, this broad category called polyphenols, which are these um, uh, uh, plant-derived uh, nutrients that do not contain like tons of calories, but they have beneficial health effects independent of like their energy content. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of subtypes of polyphenols and subtypes of the subtypes that you could nerd out on. But those come along with things like fiber. And so all these things kind of together interact, I think, to improve health. So definitely agree. Fiber supplementation would not be my go-to move um, unless somebody uh, was already meeting the, the kind of food-based recommendation and they had significantly elevated blood cholesterol levels and they wanted to try that as a method to get those under control. That'd be a reasonable thing to do. That if somebody's eating like no dietary fiber and they're like, I'll just supplement 35 grams a day, I think we're missing out on a lot of potential health benefits by avoiding these like kind of plant-derived food sources. Yeah. So. The other thing I'll say also, when you have a diet that is rich in uh, fiber from food, food sources, the satiety promotion from that dietary pattern is also very high. You don't seem to see the same amount for people taking fiber shakes, particularly flavored uh, fiber shakes. So uh, some of that like food replacement or food substitution type stuff, if people are eating now more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, they're likely to eat less of other things due to satiety, uh, feeling full. Whereas if they slam like a Metamucil shake, they may like initially gag, but then as far as like the actual <laughs> satiety effect from that may not be as high. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap on episode 172. Big shout out to Warhorse Barbell Club for having us in for our most recent seminar and Tom Capitelli for recording this question and answer session. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. We can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. Once again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is Barbell Medicine. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you.